1: and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. Today's guest is Dr. Megan Mobs. Megan is the president of the Romulus T. Weatherman Foundation and vice president for client strategies for link public affairs. She's a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, a former paratrooper and a combat veteran. She earned a master's degree in forensic psychology from George Washington University and holds a doctorate in clinical psychology from Columbia University, where her work focused on the psychological impact of an all-volunteer military and the role of transition stress in the lives of military veterans. She's worked with and advised numerous nonprofits and has worked with other veteran-focused organizations. A Tillman Scholar and George W. Bush Veteran Leadership Scholar, Mobs was the youngest ever presidential appointee to the West Point Board of Visitors. Now, full disclosure, Megan is a very dear and valued friend who also serves on the advisory board of Soldier Strong, which, as you all know, is the nonprofit I co-founded in the wake of 9-11. Megan Mobs, it's a pleasure to have you welcome the Next Steps Forward.
2: Thanks, Chris. It's always a pleasure to talk to you in any capacity. You
1: know, we talk all the time or swap emails, and every time I look at your bio, I just get more and more impressed, and you keep layering things on and layering things on. Uh, they have to put your picture next to the word overachiever and, and patriot in the, in the dictionary.
2: You are too kind. That is not true. I've listened to some of your podcasts and your guests, and I rank very low, okay? Very I'm, low on accomplishments eye. for folks.
1: <laughs> so you know, I mentioned your career is just so impressive, you're a gifted writer on so many topics, you advise various nonprofits and lead the Weatherman Foundation, but your military career is something that amazes me, as is your career in forensic psychology. So let's tackle the military story first. Your parents were both army officers. Share their story and what life was like for you growing up as a child.
2: Oh my gosh, I could fill the whole hour talking about that, Chris. Um, So both my parents served. My father retired after 36-ish years. Um, on active duty, uh, kind of ended his his uh, time in service at the Pentagon, he was there on 9-11, which obviously deeply influenced me and my trajectory. I was in high school at the time, uh, but my mother was also active duty. So she served as well at a time when there weren't that many women serving. I was one of the first women to go to airborne school, deployed to Grenada. So I grew up very much hearing stories from both sides. And I will say then my mom did get out when I was born to be a stay-at-home mom, lives things were very, very different back then. And the idea of even having a dual military career was, was just not possible, uh, just by virtue of all of the different things that were going on both socially and culturally and in the military at the time. Um, so she served for a shorter period of time, did active duty time and then time in the reserves. But both of them, their commitment to service and our country really is what inspired me to want to serve. Now at the time, I didn't know necessarily that meant going uh, in uniform. They were both very adamant that I serve in any capacity. capacity and they wanted me to just kind of follow my dreams but 9-11 really like 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 you chris uh for me that changed the trajectory of everything
1: so i mentioned before the show i didn't know that your mother also served but Mm -hmm. she was a paratrooper
2: She was a paratrooper
1: it's all like the family business it is the family business
2: (laughs) so there's both my parents me enticing my little
1: brother jump out of planes at twenty thousand feet or whatever it is it just sounds like fun
2: Yes, I honestly I loved it. I mean, it is first off, it's super fun for those who haven't done it. Um, I've done it on the sports side, so civilian side, and I've done it uh, through the military. It is super fun, but also it was more about the stories I grew up hearing around the camaraderie of being a paratrooper. And like, there truly is nothing that feels like when you're on an aircraft, you're standing up, you're with everyone in the same uniform, the same equipment. And you're hooking up to the same anchor anchor line cable, which is how you hook up before you do a static line jump. And knowing that you were on like the same anchor line cables, all these other paratroopers is like, there is nothing like it in the world. Like I've played team sports, I've competed at high levels with team sports. And that is just like pales in comparison to what it feels like to jump out of an aircraft with like your best friends, basically.
1: I've got goosebumps just visualizing that because I can totally see you doing that. So despite the upheaval of being a child of the military service, you chose to join the army too. So why military service at all? Why the army in general? And then why West Point in particular?
2: Well, you have to remind me, I'm probably going to miss some of that in there on all those questions, but, but so I, first I grew up loving it. I watched you say when I was in kindergarten and my kindergarten teacher asked me like they always do, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at the time I said, I wanted to be an army wife because my mom had already gotten out of the military by that point, And she worked so hard organizing things, volunteering for things. Like I thought it was an actual profession. Um, so from that time, kind of early on, I was like, I want to be part of whatever this is, this kind of this, like, this bonded brotherhood or sisterhood. So again, but not really present wasn't really in the forefront of my mind through middle school, high school, nine 11 happened. I was a sophomore, um, and at the time, I was like, you know what? I'm going to graduate. I'm going to enlist. I really want to be a combat medic, 68 Whiskey, and I want to do that. And my parents at the time, both of them were ROTC, said, listen, we love that you want to serve. We love that you want to do this. Um, why don't you look at one of the military academies? So I went up to West Point. I think it was my – like for you can do a weekend where you shadow a cadet. Uh, It was in the winter, the the cadet I was shadowing got yelled at for having her hands in her pocket because it was cold out. And I was like, I do not want to do this. If I can't put my hands in my pockets when I'm freezing, like eh, probably not the place for me. But I signed up to do the summer program. They have like a week long or two week long summer program. I was like, it'll look good on my college applications. I'll do it anyway. I'll apply for it. If I get selected, it'll just be a good experience. Did it, fell in love. Like fell in love with everything about West Point, about the traditions and the camaraderie and this idea that would like basically force me to be the best version of myself in college. So left those two weeks and was like, that's it. I'm going to apply early decision. If I get in, West Point it is.
1: That's amazing. So I saw that 23% of West Point undergrads in the 2022-23 academic year were women. It's been a few years, but do you recall the percentage when you were there?
2: I, so it's a, and I, and I don't want to be wrong, but it, it was in the teens. It certainly wasn't that level of women. I mean, it wasn't even near that. I want to say at the time, I want to say it was 15%. Um, but that may be, I think I'm in the ballpark for sure. It was not over 20%. I mean, there's been an explosion of women participating in the military over the last couple of decades and not just the military academies, just in service in general, and one of the other things I do is I, I kind of speak and do policy around, especially women veterans issues. And it is the fastest growing demographic in the veteran space is women veterans, because there's just so many more of us now than there ever previously was. And it was for a whole host of reasons, we had the policy decisions, opening up all the different military occupational specialties. It was the two wars, but it's also been a pretty concentrated effort on the part of all of the different DOD affiliates, Army, Navy, and then the military academies to actually recruit women to come to the service academies or join the military.
1: The needle's moving in the right direction.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think, I think ultimately, I think my, my thing is, and you know, this probably begins to get to like a little bit of a, an area where people have, I think, voiced disagreement on, um, I just want the best person. I want the best qualified person. I don't care what they look like. I don't care what gender they are. I don't care what race, ethnicity, their religion. Like, I want the best possible person representing America and whatever that means in that job position
1: all you want to hear is I got your six.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I'm, and yes, exactly.
1: And last question on this, how are women treated then compared to your male peers?
2: So I had a really good experience. I will say I f- felt always very supported. I think this is one of those things where Uh, you know, experiences vary. It's like a phrase that people use often when they talk about their deployment experience as well. Like experiences vary. If you were like a certain MOS, maybe you were in the back, uh, you know, doing logistics work, which is me, which I still think is very sexy and cool, or you were out like on a fob. And so experiences vary. But, But for me, I had... A wonderful experience. I felt extraordinarily supported by my male cadets, my male peers in the military. And I felt very supported by the women that I served alongside. I will say, I think that the the thing I talk about sometimes is there, that there definitely is like a brotherhood of arms. There isn't less of a well-defined sisterhood of arms. And some of that's probably just by virtue. There's not as many of us. And oftentimes we find ourselves like one or twosies in a group of mostly men. Um, but in general, I, I had an amazing experience.
1: Are there key traits that make someone a good candidate for the military or does the military really break down all recruits and instill those necessary traits in them?
2: Oh, so I think in general, um, and there's, there's, again, I I keep going, I feel like pop culture talk right now. There's all these things about military recruitment right now. We're we're struggling, right? It's very, very clear, regardless of what angle you come at it from, we are having a very difficult time meeting recruitment numbers. And I think the army is again, going to be under recruitment numbers and they're having to completely relook how they're doing it. So I would say anybody that wants to serve is a positive thing, right? That is the trait you need. You want to serve. And what makes them want to serve? Well, it doesn't necessarily matter. Maybe it's patriotism. Great. Maybe it's family business. Great. Maybe it's because they need college money. Actually, none of that really matters if we can get them in the door, because I think really where the focus needs to be on outside of making sure that we're recruiting enough people and they're quality candidates, because I actually don't necessarily believe in lowering standards. I mean, we just need to encourage more people to serve is that once they get in the door, we do have to do that second point. You said We have to do a very, very good job of breaking people down to build them back up as the team that we need. We need to really make sure that we are doing that so thoughtfully and intentionally because our culture right now is very, very much one of individualism, not necessarily coming together for a common purpose. And that's the point of basic training or basic officer training or whatever it may be, is to really build those cohesive units. And to be frank, I'm not sure we're even doing necessarily a great job at that right now. But I think the most important thing to your your first question is, we just got to get people in the door. So what makes somebody good to serve you meet the minimum qualifications, and you want to do it. Let's get you
1: in. You know, you talk about the all-volunteer force, and I've been doing some work with Dr. Joel uh, Cooper-Smith and General George Casey. Uh, oh, yeah. Dr. Cooper-Smith at Georgetown, he runs their Veterans Initiative, mm-hmm. and last year was the 50th anniversary of the all-volunteer force, and so they've run a couple of different workshops the last few years talking about that, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but to your point, you said the word individualism. That's what we've become as a nation. That's what we become as a, mm-hmm. become as a society. Much. And to your point, in my statement, I got your six. Well, you got to be in the foxhole with somebody. You can't be there by yourself.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And I will say that, I mean, there's so much debate right now about like it is an all-volunteer force sustainable. I mean, clearly the world is struggling right now, right? We have war in Europe. We are about we have war in the Middle East again. We had you know seven or eight coups in uh Central Africa. Latin America is destabilizing. I mean, we are, we've are we got some problems on top of China being aggressive and I know this isn't a foreign policy podcast, but, but we've got some, some serious issues that we're gonna have to face and confront as a nation. And one of the kind of powers that America has is our ability to project strength around the world. And part of that strength is our military, whether it's our Navy or our Air Force or Army Marines, it doesn't matter, but our ability to put forward capability which we're seeing in the Middle East right now as we're putting forward that entire carrier group but if we don't have anybody in the foxhole, we certainly don't have anybody in the ships or in, in the aircraft, and we need that. We, we absolutely have to have that. And it, it, we've become a society where people aren't looking at military service as an opportunity for them, an opportunity to further their lives, to better their lives, make connections or anything like that. They're opting out. And we need to do a much better job of finding ways to get people to opt in.
1: Now, then putting bodies and boots and backpacks like you alluded to, what would you say are the pros and cons for a young woman to join the military today?
2: So the pros are, I mean, gosh, I, and I, and I say this all the time and I'm only halfway joking when I say it, if I had gone to a state university or I'd gone to normal college, I would have like tried to rush a sorority. I would have probably had like a fabulous time, but I wouldn't have been the best version of myself. I would not have been forced to say, Megan, what is your potential? What are you, what are you actually capable of? Where are your margins and how can you push past them? And so the pros, I mean, gosh, I, all of them. I mean, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be doing all the things I'm doing without my military service. It opened so many doors for me. It built incredible relationships. I mean, obviously West Point and West Point's network is, is, is quite remarkable, but you can have that in military service. You don't need a service academy to necessarily have that. So the pros are the experience I've had, the relationships I've built, uh, the confidence that's instilled in me, uh, the desire to serve my country, to continue to find ways to give back to my community. All of that I got from service. I think some of the cons are certainly what you see. I think that obviously women are much more likely to be exposed to potential sexual harassment and assault. There's been many that are trying to fix that. And I think it it would be very disingenuous of me to not address some of those perspectives. Now, I know plenty of people that have had those experiences and that certainly would be a con for women is you have to weigh, well, is it worth it or not? And I would say like, absolutely. Because the only way we get people held accountable is ensuring that good people are in the system. Good people are fighting back and standing up and saying no, and also drawing our lawmakers attention to all of that. So I would say certainly that's a con. And then to be Totally transparent. It's very hard to be a mom and be in the military. It's super hard. Um, It's very challenging. The terms. I mean, I when I first had my oldest daughter, she's eleven now. uh, I think we were then entitled to six weeks of maternity leave. I found out I was pregnant at six weeks. I immediately went over to the CDC, the Child Development Center, to enroll her for daycare. Was put on a waiting list. She wasn't even accepted into the CDC. I think until week she was eight or ten weeks old because there was such a backlog. I was very lucky, very blessed to have my mom be able to come down and stay with my daughter because I went to the field the first week back from maternity leave. I went to the field. I was still breastfeeding. I had to pump in the field. A Humvee had to take my milk to my Italian headquarters for my mom to get, to get to my, to my daughter. Like it was extraordinary. There's been some amazing improvements since then. It wasn't that long ago. I guess it's been 10 years since I got out, but there's been some amazing improvements, but still it's very challenging to be a mother. It's very challenging to be dual military. And then one of our fellow, um, veteran Bush leader scholars does a lot of research on the fact that there's not that many mentors uh, for women in the military. And that's a big gap for women that they don't necessarily have that one-on-one attention that they need.
1: Sticking maybe just one more, two minutes on the idea of raising your right hand and taking the oath to defend your nation from all enemies, foreign and domestic. Military service was an American tradition for decades, and your family exudes that. Uh, and your your husband also serves, and you said your brother too. So it is the family business. <laughs> So many Americans had a grandfather or a great-grandfather who served in World War II. There were 16 million Americans that served the military in World War II from a total population of only 140 million. That's 11%. Today, Mm -hmm. there are 1.3 million on active duty, four-tenths of 1%. Virtually all branches of the military, as you pointed out, have been falling short of their recruitment goals. How do we get more people to serve?
2: So... First of all, I want to underscore the tragedy of what you just said. I mean, certainly, obviously, the reason why so many served in our grandfather's generation or great grandfathers was because of World War broke out, right? And there was a necessity to have them serve. And so we can lament that fact while also stating that that very historical figure allowed there to be this connection to service in our country in a really profound way, and the outcomes of all of that were major net benefits for our country. It gave people opportunities to go to college that wouldn't have had opportunities to. It really, truly helped begin to really spark the civil rights movement in our country, giving fire to, hey, they, you know, those that served in our uniform, they also deserve rights and opportunities in different ways. And so while it took another couple of decades to get there, really the embers began really burning for civil rights post-World War II it allowed there to be a shared sense of values. And and certainly there were things that happened during that timeframe historically that we can look back and be like, well, not good. But we've learned from all of that. And I think that's a really important part about America is that we, we make mistakes, right? We have made mistakes and yet we still strive. And that is what makes us remarkable is that striving. It's the striving towards being better than our past selves. And I say all that because I think the dangerous thing. And I, and I use dangerous intentionally because I think it is extraordinarily dangerous that so few serve right now, because there is not a shared sense of value. There's not a shared sense of what it means to be a citizen. And if you don't understand what it means to be a citizen, then you're going to feel less likely to be civically engaged, which means voting, serving your community in some capacity, running for office, putting on a uniform and all of those things matter. And eventually over time, you begin to have a degradation of your society writ large. And I think, unfortunately we are experiencing that we are in the throes of, you know, the tail end or the midst of it. I hope it's the midst of it because I, I wanted to be able to see a way out of here of that degradation of society where people don't feel bought into what it means to be an American. And if they don't feel what, feel what it means to be bought into being an American, they're not going to sacrifice their lives for it. They're not going to put on a uniform. They're not going to want to go die for something that they don't believe in. They're not going to want to die for their fellow American. So I think our, our problems are actually quite large. And the recruiting crisis that the military is seeing is, I think, is a symptom of a much larger issue. And so they have a really tough time right now. And they're doing some pretty creative things to begin to bridge that gap. But I think we need to get even further left. I think that we need to be very intentional about bringing back civic education into our elementary schools, talking about what it means to be a citizen, having older generations of veterans intentionally engaging with school-aged children because that's really where you begin to form those necessary connections and relationships. Um, So all that to say, I mean, it's problematic and it's a huge hurdle that we're going to have to overcome and it's a generational problem. This isn't something that's going to be solved next year when we make recruitment numbers. Yay! that's not going to matter, right? That, that's actually not the issue. The issue is much broader and encompasses all of our society.
1: Well, and to your point, it, it's a national security threat. You mentioned Absolutely. China. We know what's going on in Russia. We've got the Middle East again, which always seems to flare up. And I'll apologize to listeners. There are three things I don't talk about this show and it's gun politics and abortion. But I want to go back to what Megan said and use the word individualism. You know The, the whole wokeism, cancel culture, individualism, it's yourself versus all. Um, My listeners know I'm I'm very proud of my undergrad and grad school, uh, the Maxwell School at Syracuse, and in the lobby Mm at the Maxwell School, they have the Athenian Oath implanted there with a a statue of George Washington, and it basically means you're going to leave the city-state better than you found it, and we're not going down that path. It's a tragedy.
2: We aren't. It's an absolute tragedy. And I will tell you, um, your alma mater, Syracuse, just kind of do a little historical thing, was one of the best and most impressive implementers of the GI Bill post World War II. They did an amazing job of returning GIs, integrating them into campus life, giving them housing for those that were married and had children, and truly giving them an, op- an opportunity to have, which is what. All of the prosperity of our country was based on, was the opportunity that World War II veterans had and how they decided to give back to our country, not just in service, but post-service as well. So Syracuse is quite a quite a proud implementer of that stuff.
1: Thank you. And I'll give it one more plug. Going uh, to the 21st century, uh, they created a new building a few years ago uh, called the Institute for Veterans and Military Families, which is a yep. state-of-the-art 21st century, full city block, everything for veterans and their families. And it's just amazing. I'll help with transitions and, and you know, just kind of get them prepared. So, all right, that's my last orange plug. Our football team's not doing so great, so we got to move on.
2: Chris, so, I go to West Point, so trust me. I've weaved in and out of us doing very well and very terribly. So, but yeah, based but, on football scores, we got a problem.
1: You've got the Army-Navy game. Come on, that's one of the best things out there.
2: That is true. That is true.
1: So, you graduated from Jump Master School and were selected to take an aerial delivery detachment to Afghanistan. You served the rigors from both the 82nd and 101st Airborne Divisions. How did that experience change who you were?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know if it changed who I was as much as it brought out the best parts of me and helped kind of tamper down the worst parts of myself <laughs> um, because it really required, I mean, I was young. I was super young. When I when I went to, to Fort Bragg uh, and I took my first platoon, I had the biggest platoon in the army. I think my platoon was 132, 133 paratroopers at the time. I was 22. Um, and when I took my detachment, again, I was very young. I think it must've been 23, 24-ish at the time. And you were still responsible for, for all of it, even though you are, you're the highest ranking, but oftentimes one of the youngest members of, the, of that team. And it really instilled in me uh, the, I would say like it's like the burden of leadership, understanding what that means, making really tough decisions knowing that you may not be liked, you may not be popular, you may find yourself very, very lonely at night. But if you can stand by your principles, your morals, and you're making the right leadership decision, then it's all worth it. Even if it means you have to alone bear the burden of being that decision maker. And and sometimes, especially in the military, you have to make very, very challenging decisions that impact lives and so I want to just say, I think that that is really one of the things that, for me anyway, it forced that burden of leadership, that mantle of leadership on me.
1: The transition from military life to civilian life is very difficult for some people and much easier for others. How is your transition and what planning or preparation does someone need to make that a successful next step forward?
2: Chris, this is like a no longer podcast because this is my whole dissertation topic. <laughs> um, so, gosh, you asked me, boil Let down me toss to you watermelon. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so my transition, gosh, my transition was unique. Well, it's not everything, everybody's is unique because it's their individual transition. But I went straight into a master's program. I was selected as a Tillman scholar. I was going to school at night. So I had kind of a weird wonky transition because I was transitioning, but I was also a little bit being a stay-at-home mom. But it was actually during my transition that I realized, actually, let me back up a little more. It's actually during my dad's transition out that I realized there was something more than just leaving the army. But it wasn't just like, I'm in one day, I'm out the next, hanging up my uniform and it's fine. Um, It it was seeing him who served, like I said before, 36 years, served in Vietnam, uh, was a platoon leader, a recon platoon leader in Vietnam. So saw a substantial combat, right? Exposure to uh, untold numbers of potentially traumatic events. And mostly okay, right? No PTSD, no trauma manifestations, nothing really like that. And it really wasn't until he left service. I remember him sitting at the kitchen table one night, looking just so sad. And I remember asking my dad, I "Was like, you know, Dad, what's what's wrong?" And he had had this amazing corporate job, right? He like retired with fanfare, like an actual, like literal parade ceremony, everything, right? It was it was all the bells and whistles, um, you know. Stable, loving family, economically stable, into a very very high paying job, had a house, right? So uh, uh, for all in the purposes. And on paper, it should have been very easy for him, right? She should have been able to walk into it. Life should have been great. But there was this period where he was deeply mourning the loss of what he had, the loss of the camaraderie, the relationships, the meaning, and the purpose behind what he was doing every day. And that is something that then I was like, oh. And so when I went to my transition, I had that in the back of my mind, but it wasn't until I got into my doctorate that I was like, there's something more here right PTSD as you and I've talked about before Chris very insidious right very difficult to treat insidious and it affects more people than it ever should right because it means that traumatic things have happened but that for so many veterans it's the distress the distress of leaving service and going back to the civilian world that actually has substantial impact that we were missing that we weren't really addressing in our transition workshops. We weren't really addressing at the VA. We were missing this kind of very large experience that people were happening and doing nothing to make sure that they were bolstered during that period.
1: Well, when you do something for 36 years, to your point, it's hard to just flip that switch and, you know, hang up the camo over here and go put on your blue pinstripe suit and go to your other job. Of Um, course. And I've had the pleasure and honor of meeting your father a few times and he's a, a great American hero. So thank you.
2: Oh, thank you. I'm partial. So I like him a lot. You're entitled to
1: be <laughs> and you should be. No, he's just, just an all around great, great American. You know, I guess it as a follow up. Is there anything that friends or family should or shouldn't do to help with the transition?
2: I mean, you need to recognize how challenging it is that this is not, again, and not a flip that you can switch. It, it's something that takes time, and I and I've said before that the the transition isn't um, like temporal in the sense that it's like on this linear line. It's almost like a spherical, amorphous thing in which some days are great, some days are not. It may take a couple of years before you realize like, oh, I'm like really experiencing this heavy feeling of leaving these things behind. So I would say for friends and family, they just need to recognize that it can be very distressing that the transition isn't as easy as it seems maybe perhaps, or as easy as it should be, or as you might imagine, because of everything that we've talked about related to kind of being truly immersed in this collective experience with other people, and then all of a sudden losing all of that. geography, Like the geographic location, the people that you served with, the purpose and meaning, the shared sense of values, yank that all away, and that would be challenging for anyone.
1: One last question on this before our break. Where should mental health resources find the network?
2: Wait. So that where, where where should they go? Where should
1: mental health resources fit into the whole transition? Oh, everywhere, narrative?
2: right? Like everywhere. So it's not a diagnosis, right? Like so, we I talk about transition stress. It's not a diagnosis. So it's not something that you're gonna ever find in the DSM or diagnostic manual. But it's certainly a part of it, right? And, and transition stress can exacerbate underlying mental health challenges like depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. So it should be part and parcel with all of that. That building and making sure you're not isolating all of that should be part of the conversation as you transition.
1: We've been talking to Dr. Megan Mobs, and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
0: The White House doctor makes house calls.
2: It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com.
0: You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's one 888 346 9141, or send an email to chris at Now, back to this week's show.
1: And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward, and my guest today is Dr. Megan Mobs. Megan is the president of the Romulus T. Weatherman Foundation and vice president for client strategies for link public affairs. She's a graduate of West Point, former paratrooper and combat veteran. She earned a master's degree in forensic psychology from George Washington University and also a doctorate in clinical psychology from Columbia University. Megan, I often ask this question toward the end of my conversations with guests, but it came to mind as you were talking about your parents, who are your role models and what is it about them that inspires or motivates you?
2: Oh, I, I feel like it's like such a uh, cop out. Like, it's my parents, <laughs> um, but it is my parents. So I'm just going to lean into that uh, because I mean, First off, I feel so incredibly blessed to have the child that I had. I I tell my girls, I have an 11 and 10-year-old, as you know, Chris, like, gosh, we won the lottery being born in America. Like every day I wake up like just like so feeling so lucky to be in our country, um, to be an American. But I feel like I won the double lottery, like the jackpot, like the million dollar, billion dollar jackpot being born to my parents because they are extraordinarily selfless individuals. My mom is an amazing giving woman. She volunteers. She is an extraordinarily deep woman of faith, um, modeled for me everything that you might imagine in terms of like sacrificing for her children, but also for her country. And then my dad showed that in a completely different way, but no less profound during his time in the military. So um, I'm extremely close with them. I'm that kind of kid that's still like, even as almost 40 year old, I'm like home all the time. I call them all the time. Um, I would say they're like the role models I see up close all the time that I feel very, very lucky to have. But there's like so many other people in my life. I feel very much like role models should be something that you should find someone personal to you. It should be something that is, you are in direct contact on a routine basis but also something very attainable. I feel like some days like my daughters will say to me like, oh, this like YouTuber is like my role model. I'm like, ah, what do you mean by that? Let's have a conversation (laughs) about it, what it means to be a role model and how, and and I think that we're not necessarily always doing a great job of communicating to the younger generation, like role models should be something very personal. And actually you should be in contact with them frequently because that is how you're going to be able to, to to, like model yourself after them. Anyway, that was a tangent, but my mom and dad,
1: no, but to your point about YouTube and your 10, 11 year old, uh, my wife and I, our youngest, our son is 11. So same age, they had 30% of their life in lockdown. So they didn't really know what mm-hmm. role models were and to see and to experience other than, you know, whenever there's a random sport on, and you don't always want an athlete to be a role model, given some of the things that happened in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, I, it's the new generation. We're gonna have to sort of teach them or reteach some of these things in terms of going back to this Athenian oath and what it means to be an American and, and a citizen mm-hmm. of, the, of the world, not just the country. Um, so I can appreciate and respect, you know, not everyone's gonna immediately go to mom and dad as their hero. So I I love that. The break, I just hope one
2: day they're all, when they're on a podcast, they get to say that I'm there. <laughs> I little would little.
1: love to have them on. <laughs> Hear about young Megan and see what trouble she got into. <laughs> oh, yeah, plenty. And descend to the Academy mm-hmm. to straighten you out. So Megan, before the break, we were discussing the process of veterans transitioning from the military ranks to civilian life. And you decided as you were leaving active duty that a background in psychology was necessary for you to get to where you wanted to go professionally. What is forensic psychology and how is it different from other, what other psychologists
2: do? So my master's in forensic psychology, and it was actually at the time very intentional. So forensic psychology, kind of the the, the very like large breadth of it Focuses on the intersection of mental health and the law. So, the legal system, mental health, and where those things oftentimes collide. So, you can think of like, you know, forensic facilities, like where someone's found not guilty by reason of insanity or needs restoration to competency. I believe most forensic psychologists fall in that realm where they're kind of acting uh, within the legal system to help restore to competency, to do evaluations related to being not guilty by reason of insanity. But there's a whole other portion of that 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 is part of also the law enforcement community. So profiling falls within forensic psychology. So if you want to think of like, you know, what is it, Mindhunter, the FBI profilers, right? Like that, that's really the realm of forensic psychology in which you're looking at aberrant human behavior and how it, you know, how you might be able to either predict it or identify someone who's manifesting it. So that's part of it. But then an an either different subset of it is what I'll call operational psychology or political psychology. Those kind of also can kind of get nested under there sometimes. And operational psychology really is looking at psychology through how it can be operationalized through and in in the national security realm. And so I knew very much at the time when I, so you mentioned before, when I deployed, I deployed, I found myself very lucky to be serving a very large, I'm going to call them a customer based in Afghanistan with logistics and aerial delivery. Part of that brought me in in kind of in in concert with JSOC, doing special operations at the time. And I met my first mentor, who I would say is really my first mentor, um, who was one of the first psychologists for Delta, our tier one special operators. And he helped design the the psychological assessment and selection for our operators. And, you know, I I joke about this often. He was like, Megan, you're good at logistics. You're great at people. Have you ever thought about leaving logistics and going to do psychology? And so it was him that really encouraged me to begin pursuing this path. But my undergrad was comparative politics, focus on Russia, I was like, how am I going to get there? And then also like, I don't really understand all these different things. And so I found the forensic psychology program at George Washington, which I could not recommend more. And I had the opportunity to study under Jerry Post and Jerry Post was one of the first psychiatrists for the CIA. And his role and responsibility was political behavior. Profiling political leaders is basically the best way to kind of summarize what he did. And at the time, I was going to use that master's, get my, my PhD, because you need a PhD to work in the agency doing that work or in the DOD. And that was my goal. But along the way, um, life happens, right? It's like always like life happens, especially when you're like educational path is super protracted, like when you're doing a PhD. And along the way, I recognize that actually, I may not be able to have as big of an impact as I wanted, going back in uniform and trying to do it for the DOD. Um, and so I just kind of changed trajectories, but it's something I will say even now, still in the back of my mind, I'm like, eh, I can still do this. I can still apply and I go back active duty or, or, you know, do it somewhere else. But, um, forensic psychology does encompass a lot of different things. And there are people that do some really cool things as a forensic psychologist, but you do need a doctorate, right? So the, the master's gives you that kind of specialty subset, but going on to do the doctorate is kind of that critical piece.
1: So that's sort of like your minor in psychology. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, cool. <laughs> to your minor. That's mm. all. So you touched on a lot of different things for what a forensic psychologist does, but who hires one? Is it the police, defense attorneys, the courts, ah, mm-hmm. families?
2: So all of it. So you can have a forensic evaluation done externally. So you can have, your families can hire them they want to have one, like a, basically like a psychological assessment of their, their family member. If they're going to trial for whatever reason, um, oftentimes attorneys hire them, they can be utilized in court. Um, there are forensic psychologists who are hired and part of the FBI or part of local law enforcement agencies, so they, there are opportunities within law enforcement there. Uh, maximum security forensic facilities have um uh, forensic psychologists, I think, like Rikers Island, for example, and their role is either is, is oftentimes twofold again, that kind of piece of, of treatment, um, so helping. Uh, for recidivism, so trying to make sure that if this person is released, whether they're in the mental health forensic facility or they're they're you know serving even in the general population at times, is that piece of helping address whatever kind of core feature existed. Um, restoration of competency. So if you're found not guilty, if you're found incompetent in trial, meaning that you can't represent yourself or you, you're not capable, of, you're effectively you're not. I mean, you're just considered not competent. You're not able to make decisions regarding your attorney or anything like that. Um, forensic psychologists help restore to competency. So they can be hired by the court. Um, they can also work at a forensic facility, like I mentioned earlier, to help do that restoration to competency piece. And that can be a combination of both therapy and medication.
1: As I've done before do you, and shift gears a little bit here. Yeah. Social media can have a huge impact on the mental health of people, and especially young people whose self-image and well-being can be affected by what they see online or more tragic cases by being cyber bullied. You yes. co-wrote an article in March about the need to ban TikTok. And you can compare it to fentanyl. Do you still feel that way? And make that case for us if you do.
2: Hell yes. (laughs) I do. Like I still very much stand by this. No hesitation there. No hesitation. Uh, I still my, my daughter has a shirt that says ban TikTok. I'm, I'm I'm pretty militant, as you can see, about about TikTok because it's so dangerous. It's so, so dangerous. And then people are like, fentanyl, that's a huge comparison. Like, are you sure? You know, fentanyl is, you know, fentanyl. Yes, of course it's extremely deadly. And of course, it's on apples to apples comparison. It wouldn't be a comparison if it was apples to apples. That's the whole point of a comparison. But what I mean by that, what I meant by comparing it to fentanyl is it's highly addictive. Super, super addictive. The algorithms are built to be addictive, right? Because they want you to spend more time on the app. Highly addictive, highly corrosive. We know that it triggers certain parts in the brain related to the reward mechanism, which makes you stay on it longer. But we also know it influences a whole bunch of other pathways and behaviors, and it can actually bring you deeper into something you already were searching. Let's say, for example, this is particularly true and pernicious of uh, eating disorders. So anorexia, bulimia, but especially anorexia. If you find yourself in these kind of, or or seeing a video related to that, kind of that behavior related to anorexia. And so there's a whole subset of of TikTok specifically that is called Thinspo, Thin Inspiration. And if you start looking at that photos, you can, or or those videos, you can get sucked into more and increasingly um, more dangerous content around that stuff. And so, yes, I very much believe that. We don't understand what it does to the brain fully yet, that we know what it does do is not good. It's not helpful. Obviously, the version that China's using is not the version they've exported to the U.S. The version that China uses limited users' time. They're exposed to things like you know, science experiments and being astronauts and stuff like that. We're getting like the truly um, manipulated version. We don't understand the back doors, technologically speaking, yet. So, yes, I mean, I- I'm a huge fan TikTok all the way, 100%, no questions asked and then i think that we need to be very very seriously looking at the impact of all social media on children um, especially instagram on body image uh, well being all of that suicidal behavior like you know there there and unfortunately we're seeing that the more pe- the more you, you talked about lockdown earlier the more that kids spent time on social media during lockdown the more likely they were to develop things like depression anxiety suicidality and suicidal behavior and ideation I and mean, like all of that very little good is truly coming out of social media, in my opinion.
1: Well, you and I had several discussions right before COVID in terms of what I was calling sort of the mental health crisis of, of America. Then mm-hmm. obviously COVID hit, and we're now what I'm calling is having a, a mental health tsunami, you know, the, the crashing yeah. wave three and a half, nearly four years later. And COVID was the perfect storm, obviously, for TikTok and for social media. Yeah. And to your point, it's got to be wa- watched. It's got to be monitored. TikTok announced a new mental health app on October 10th, so just two weeks ago today, to connect users with, quote, verified resources for mental health and a new way to control screen time. You know, Apple's tried to do some stuff with the phone and the watch. TikTok allegedly is doing something here. And again, use air quotes around allegedly. You know, is that enough to address concerns about its enormous impact?
2: No. 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 And what we're seeing is actually all the other things that go along with it. Because it's not even just being on the app. It's being on the app and preventing you from doing what you should be doing as an adolescent, going outside, taking risks, using your imagination, socially engaging person to person, all of that matters. And so even if they address mental health on the app, it still doesn't address all of these other pieces that are critical to being a child and experiencing the world. So it's especially pernicious again for children and adolescents. They're not doing enough. I don't believe anything they say, right? Because Facebook... There was that huge expose about a year and a half ago from the Wall Street Journal. They knew. Facebook knew that their stuff was causing adolescent girls to hate themselves, to hate their bodies, and to engage in self-harm. And their response was to bury it. It wasn't to say, like, we should do something about this. This is problematic. It was to bury it because it's about money. It's about money for them, money for their shareholders. So, no, I don't believe Anything they say that it's effective, or that that's that somehow going to improve the experience of anyone using it. So unfortunately, no. It put me down as a hard no for, for all of I was going to say, how
1: do you really feel?
2: I'll never be asked to be like on any of those boards. Trust me.
1: <laughs> so I mentioned the first half of the show. We don't talk about politics is one of the things here, but let's talk about constitutional law. And full and fair disclosure, I took con law in one and two as an undergrad. I was in moot court and lost, so I am not a lawyer. But we can do the whole issue of freedom of expression and the value of diverse content. Those are discussions for another day. Banning a platform is a significant step. Banning Mm -hmm. freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. Are there less drastic alternatives that could be be taken?
2: So, also not a lawyer, but... It's not freedom of speech right because not everybody's on it not everybody's on the app there certainly is algorithms that that, that elevate other speech versus others we know that as well so it's not actually banning speech you can still go out and yell in your art whatever you want to yell or hold up a sign right Again, this is a a platform that allows you to speak, but it's not a manifestation of that particular freedom necessarily. So banning an app, I do think it's very significant. Let me be clear. I think it's a very significant step. I do think something that has to be weighed very, very carefully. That's why I'm I'm particularly uh, outspoken about TikTok. I'm less in terms of Facebook, Instagram, and all of those. They're American-owned companies. Um, So there's a little bit less national security risk there. I think there's severe mental health risk which is, is a separate issue from the national security risk. It's very clear there's both a mental health issue and a national security risk for, for TikTok. It is being manipulated and utilized to basically dumb down the American public. For, I mean, that is a serious boiling down of what's happening, but it's that, but they also have backdoors into all of our technology. So trying to really separate out between mental health issues, national security issues, TikTok is both because it's also not an American-based company. No reason why we shouldn't ban it. Hard no. Hard no. Hard no. (laughs) So let's get to Dr.
1: (laughs) Megan Mobbs circa 2023. I mentioned you're rolling the Romulus T. Weatherman Foundation. What is the foundation's mission and purpose, and how did you end up becoming its president?
2: Oh, gosh. Okay, so our, our, our mission is we forge pathways between lives in peril and critical aid. It's really our mission statement and what guides us. And so it is a private operating foundation funded almost entirely by the generosity of Bess Weatherman and Andrew Duncan. And it came really into being a couple of years ago, it was more just kind of a vehicle for for grants and for their kind of philanthropic activity, but became a private operating foundation during the evacuation of Afghanistan. So they got very heavily involved as private citizens, Bess and Andrew, and helping to evacuate girls, especially from Afghanistan at the time. And they they were almost the entire funders, of evacuating the girls' national soccer team, uh, the girls' uh, national basketball team, me- national security assets, so there's, those that served alongside our special forces, interpreters, and they were still we- doing that work when Ukraine happened. And they were like, well, if we're going to do work in Ukraine, we need a structure. We need someone to lead this effort. We need someone to make sure that there's you know, all the necessary people in place to do all of it. And I very, very luckily they, they picked me. Um, and so we still do some of the work with, with our, our Afghans. We, we still help sponsor their refuge in in Portugal as they're on their pathway to citizenship there, but the bulk of the last two years, year, well, not quite two years, but two years in March has been Ukraine. And so we have been involved in the Ukraine response since March of 2022. We do. I mean, a whole host of things. Um, we initially stood up a, a humanitarian logistics hub to help ship over 150 million dollars of aid all over Ukraine. Um, we've established a program for rest and respite for war journalists reporting on the front line to take a step out, come back in. Uh, we, in partnership with an archdiocese in Poland, we have a, a refuge for women and children who need an opportunity to have a break or just to step out of a war their country right now that's consistently at war with the sirens going off all the time. Um, but more recently, the work that I feel super, super powerfully about and all, all that obviously I feel very powerfully about as well is that we were able to identify the gap in Ukraine for American veterans like me, American veterans who felt called to serve again, who wanted to go volunteer to fight in Ukraine in their foreign legion um, or in their, you know, their standing army. If they get hurt, they're wounded in action or killed in action. There is not necessarily the same robust mechanism that exists if it were to be our conflict, obviously, um, or if it wasn't to be a a war torn country where we have policies in place that kind of prevent Americans from doing that work. So we have been involved in the repatriation of Americans killed in action, which is something I feel extremely powerfully about, making sure that they're returned home to their families. And then we also, for those that are wounded in action, ensure they get evacuated to higher echelons of care.
1: My next question was going to be, "What is the geographic scope of the foundation's activities?" But it sounds like wherever there's a humanitarian need, you guys parachute so we, in and
2: a little, a little bit. I mean, we're we're small. We're we're kind of small and scrappy. Um, but the benefit of that is we're very agile and very non bureaucratic. There are amazing organizations that are huge that have. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars every you know year to do the work that they need to do, and we certainly don't want to fashion ourselves after them. We will never be them, and we don't want to be. They they do it. Um, how we see ourselves is really finding those critical gaps, filling them until either other organizations can catch up, government can catch up, or other people step in. So we yes, we go where kind of the biggest need is, find those gaps, fill them, communicate to partners for them to come in and expand and do the good work there. But truly, yeah, it's about finding those those lives in peril and then making sure pathways to to them, whether it's people, whether it's resources, uh, whatever it may be, connecting those dots.
1: And are there partnerships or collaborations with other organizations or entities or is just sort of boots on the ground with a red cross or...
2: Oh, no, no. I mean, we we are a huge believer in partnerships. So I mean, we partner with over 75 local NGOs in Ukraine, because as always, people on the ground are going to know exactly where things need to go. So 75 local NGOs in Ukraine, we've worked with Americares, which is a massive, massive, massive international NGO, um, Samaritan's Purse. We partnered with Romanian NGOs. We partnered with Israeli NGOs. So no, we, are, we, we believe in partnerships because we truly believe like together we can go further, together we can help more people and there is enough pie for to go around for everyone.
1: And if people want to learn more to either donate or get involved, where can they go?
2: weathermanfoundation.org. Say that again? weathermanfoundation.org. Like the weatherman you see on TV, weathermanfoundation.org.
1: Gotta give the plug.
2: So- I like it. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me to do that because I wouldn't have.
1: <laughs> what are your long-term goals and visions for the foundation?
2: So uh, truly it is for us to be that go-to resource for those rapid assessments, rapid gap filling, and then again, allowing us to bring that to those very, very large NGOs that oftentimes, again, very well-funded less agile, and very bureaucratic. And so I want us to be uh, maybe not a household name because I feel like that's quite a large expectation, but perhaps a household name in those who operate in the humanitarian aid space.
1: I think it could be a household name. Romulus T. Weatherman is not like Joe (laughs) Jane Smith.
2: No, no, yet very memorable, very memorable. Um, and actually Romulus was Bess Weatherman, so one of the founders, her father, who was a GI, served in World War II, got wounded in the Philippines, came back and became a local journalist, so understood very intensely the kind of the power of fighting of the sword and the power of the pen, which is really what kind of inspired all of this.
1: I love that. So you touched about your trips to Ukraine. You know, you and I have spoken. I know you've made several trips there. Can you share a little bit about what you've seen over there?
2: Yeah, so I've been very, very lucky to be there. Oh my gosh! About every six weeks, I'm over in Ukraine right now, all over um, the east, south, central, west. I mean, all over Ukraine. And people forget, Ukraine is huge. Ukraine is a massive. It's almost the size of Texas. It's very, 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 very big. Um, And so there, there are no flights there, so you have to drive everywhere. So I spend lots of time in cars in Ukraine. Um, And I had never been to Ukraine until this happened. And I will tell you what I have seen has been. It's like what I saw in our streets after 9-11, the patriotism, love of country, the willingness to do whatever it takes, the entrepreneurship and ingenuity and desire to help their neighbor, their friend, whomever. I am like moved by that every time I go. They The, the generosity of, especially all almost all Eastern Europeans, like that kind of culture of generosity, opening their doors is so prevalent and profound. But it's horrible. I mean, Chris, what's happening there? We don't have—I don't think—my generation that fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, outside of those who were truly in something like Fallujah or Ramadi, who are experiencing house-to-house fighting. We don't have the the, the, the—I would say—the cultural experience of the kind of warfare they're fighting. It is when I I say—I mean—all war is ugly. This is something that the world hasn't seen since World War II. Truly haven't seen it at scale since World War I. French warfare, the amount of casualties is, is is truly mind-blowing, something I don't think we quite can fathom. Um, and it makes me very frightened. We talked earlier about the the recruitment numbers and what that means. Um, America is not ready to fight the kind of wars that our enemies are ready to fight. We just aren't. That's scary. It's very, very scary. It's a very fright. It's the thing that really, I will tell you, keeps me up at night. If we can't unify around certain things, if we can't band together around things that feel trivial or marginal at times, I'm not sure how we will be able to band together as a nation. And I do, I will say I would never bet against America. I would never get bet against an American because um, I know we would. But it does keep me awake at night at times because the type of warfare, what our enemies are willing to do. We, we saw what Hamas did in Israel very recently. Um, it is scary. It is the world is a very, very scary place.
1: I'm not going to give you enough time for this, but I want to end on a positive note. What gives you hope at this moment of time that will give the rest of us hope?
2: America. America still gives me hope every day. Every day, America gives me hope. The American people, what people are willing to sacrifice and give. I still believe we are that shining light, that we are the greatest country on earth. And that gives me hope because I do believe when the chips are down, when everything goes awry and we show up, it will make a difference.
1: Dr. Megan Mobbs, one of my favorite people. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Thanks, Chris. Always a pleasure.
1: No, the pleasure's mine. You're one of my heroes. So again, I appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. I'm Chris Meek, run of time. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.